Well, we are in the book of Exodus in chapter 21 in a section of the book of Exodus referred to as the book of ordinances. This is what you might think of as a typical uh, flyover zone in the Bible where Christians, they might work their way through it, but they're trying to get to more of the narrative stuff or the more stuff that seems relevant to their lives. So skip over this. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think we should at all. I mean, these are case laws, uh, the book of ordinances, case laws instituted by God that Israel agreed to as part of their covenant with him. And what we see here, and this is true of the entire Old Testament, it, this is not every law that was on the books in Israel, but rather what forms the basis of their case laws. There were many thousands more laws that were uh, in use in Israel at that time. So these laws, I think, tell us a lot about God. And in particular this week, what he thinks about violence, about violence. This is chapter 21, and I'm going to begin with verse 12. I'm not going to read all of this. I'm just going to go through, I think, about verse 17, though we're covering all the way through verse 36. So keep, even though I finish reading, keep your Bible open because I'll be referring to all these, these different passages. Let's pick it up. Verse 12, chapter 21. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good word about how you view life and death and how you view your image bearers, not just your people, but all people who you've made. So Lord, we pray this would be a good meditation on your thoughts about these things, that Lord, this would work in us uh, more love for you, but certainly more love for our neighbor too. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so there are two important uh, assumptions in this grouping of case laws that I think we need to, to understand before we start working through the laws themselves. And the first is that God did not intend violence for his creation and certainly not among his image bearers. Now, the modern kind of scientific reading of the world, which really is, is very similar to ancient pagan readings of the world, it takes violence as a given, as if it is just a natural feature of the world. You know, it's survival of the fittest and all that. And Americans, even Christians, tend to agree with this. I mean, our culture tends to reward the Darwinian attitude. But the Bible doesn't see it this way at all. So if you work through Genesis 3 through 9, and really we could just go ahead and tack on to, to chapter 11 too, uh, these passages, that passage is just fundamental for understanding these case laws. And what you see throughout that, and don't worry, I'm not going chapter by chapter, but what you see in that part of Genesis is the progression of sin and how it is manifested in particular through violence. So if you begin with Adam and Eve's relationship to God, that's severed through sin, which in turn severs their marriage. You know, sin has, has made marriage like a... Uh, a hanging chad, if you remember the Florida recount from, from 2000 or so, 
even as it has completely cut us off from God. And the consequence for their actions was, of course, death. It's pretty violent. It's death, both spiritual and physical. Then with their sons, Cain murders Abel because he was angry with God. So if he could not destroy God himself, he would destroy his image in Abel. And as an aside, you know, all quarreling and violence against another image bearer, self-defense not included because self-defense is not quarreling. No, no, no. It's, it's really an attempt at violence against God. You're going after his image. It's like how if, if someone can't get at you, perhaps, then they might come after someone you love. Maybe your children, maybe a family member. Now, by the end of Genesis 4, you find Lamech uh, collecting wives in rejection of God's standard for marriage and boasting about the murders, plural, he's committed. So Lamech was, was like Adam and Cain on steroids. So, so you can see then sin and violence just ramping up. And by the way, this, this question, uh, this is a total aside. This question came up uh, last week uh, after uh, the sermon. And the question is, does the Bible endorse polygamy? Does the Bible endorse polygamy, like what you see right here? After all, Lamech in Genesis 4 had two wives. Jacob had two wives and at least two mistresses. David had multiple wives, I think nine. And and his son Solomon, well, he outdid them all. Yet the Bible never explicitly condemns them for that practice. Well, here's a helpful way of thinking through this. In Genesis 1 and 2, God established the fundamental human relationship of one male and one female united in marriage. That's purposeful. God established this this as the standard human relationship for being fruitful and multiplying and for imaging him. What we see starting in chapter 3 is the breakdown of that fundamental human union because of sin. And as you just follow Genesis 3 through 11... Humanity breaks down in multiple ways, but a common way, a common attack on marriage was and is polygamy. So when you see people like Jacob or Solomon with multiple wives, the text is not endorsing their practices. It's actually condemning them. It doesn't have to say, dear reader, just so you know, David was behaving badly. No, it assumes you know Genesis 1 through 11 and that you see just how far removed from God's standards these people are. Okay, that's the aside. If you keep going in Genesis past uh, Lamech, the reason for the flood was that human evil and violence had reached such a crescendo. It had defiled the world so badly that God felt compelled to wipe out humanity and cleanse his creation from the stain of their violence. In Genesis 4, like with Genesis 6, God tells Cain that his brother's blood is crying out to God from the ground. So murder has polluted the earth. And by the time you get to Genesis 6, what began with Cain is now indicative of humanity as a whole. So when you get to Genesis 9, after the flood, here's what God says to Noah. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it. And for man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. 
So this is where the death penalty in Scripture is established. Blood requires blood, both if a person is killed by another person or if a person is killed by an animal. And we'll see that in a bit in some of these case laws. I've taken the time to walk us through uh, Genesis 1 through 11 because it serves as the backdrop, really the foundation to Exodus 21 and its case laws. In fact, I would say if you really want to understand the rest of Scripture or things that Paul says, for example, or what Jesus is doing, you got to know Genesis 1 through 11 pretty well. It's really important. So these laws then are intended as a restraint on what humanity naturally wants to do, which is violence. This is not an endorsement of violence at all. Israel was not to be like the world or the peoples surrounding her. Israel was to be a new Adam or a new Seth or a new Noah walking in God's ways as a light to a violent world. You see, Israel, unlike the nations, was to believe and therein treat all humans as made in the image of God. And because of that, all human life is to be protected and valued but not at all costs. Thus, there is the death penalty. Now, the second fundamental thing to see is that God, because he has made all humans in his image, demands equal treatment under the law. So if you look at verses 23 through 27, this is the famous lex talionis, otherwise known as the law of retaliation, as it is commonly thought of. And what's in view here, though, is not If you hit me, I'm going to hit you back. That's not what's in view. That's how people tend to think of this because that's what our natural sinful disposition wants to do. You hit me, you better believe I'm going to hit you back. And that's sin. That's sin. And it's the sort of mindset Jesus critiqued in the Sermon on the Mount. No, what it's really after, as James Jordan argues, is equality and equal treatment under the law. Everyone is treated fairly. There's not one punishment for a rich guy and one for the poor guy. There's not one punishment for a local and another one for a foreigner. So, for example, verse 26 doesn't say if a master hits his slave in the eye and the slave loses his eye, then guess what? The master in turn loses his eye too. No, that would be retaliation. No, it says the master loses his slave. And it gives this law, uh, this right, after, after saying uh, an eye for an eye. So it says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and then it says, but by the way, you're not going to take the eye of the master. And it's not because it's trying to favor the master at all. It's trying to get an equal ruling. So the slave lost his eye. That's big. But the master lost his slave. You know, both people lost something expensive and dear to them. So think of it like this. I want you to imagine a rock band. Let's just think of any hair band from the 1980s, okay? And you have the lead singer and the lead guitarist who are not getting along whatsoever because they're both vying for the most attention. And, and so they, they, they get into a fight and the singer crushes the guitarist's hand to where the guitarist was permanently disabled in that hand. So what would the appropriate consequence be? What would be just for this situation? Well, if we take eye for an eye woodenly, as if this is just about retaliation, then the singer's hand should be crushed too, right? Now, 
On the surface, that might seem fair, but the guitarist has not just lost his hand, he's lost his livelihood because he can't play anymore. He's out of the band and the singer, he can keep on singing. Would it not be more equitable if the singer lost, say, his vocal cords and his ability to sing? Ah, yes it would, yes it would. But it's utterly barbaric to inflict such damage on a person's body. That's how a pagan would think because to a pagan, bodies don't matter. So instead of taking a knife to the singer's uh, throat, just work with me here, uh, the, the better solution is a financial settlement that recognizes the financial loss to the guitarist. And that's exactly why the slave who lost his eye is set free. His master paid a heavy financial toll for taking his eye, and rightly so. And you see this exact same principle at work in verses 22, 29, 32, and 34, let alone other passages in Scripture. So, in other words, the punishment must fit the actual losses of the crime, and it must be administered no matter who the person is. Everyone gets equal treatment under the law. So if someone commits murder, there is no way to recoup that loss. So that person's life itself is forfeit. But as bad as the loss of an eye may be, there's ways of recouping some of that loss because at least the person is still alive. So we take this for granted in America because we live in a culture deeply affected by biblical thinking as if this sort of thing is just obvious. But you know what? It's not. It's not obvious at all. This was anything but obvious in the ancient world, and it's anything but obvious to cultures that have not been impacted by the wisdom of the Bible. And arguably, it is falling out of favor in our own country today. You know, that said, all that introduction, there are four sections of laws in this chapter that cover the issue of violence. There are five cases of capital offense, that is violence that automatically results in the death penalty. That's verses 12 through 17, that's what we read. Uh, there's five cases concerning violence in terms of assault. That's verses 18 through 27. There's five cases concerning violence done to people by animals. That's 28 through 32. And then there's three cases concerning violence done to animals by people. And that's verses 33 through 36. So there's, there's a lot here. There's a lot here, and I'm not going to give equal treatment to each of the 18 case laws. But I do want to highlight things about each grouping of case laws and what they have to teach us. So let's start with the death penalty cases. So if you start in verse 12, where we, where we read earlier, it gives two cases dealing with one person killing another person. And the first is murder, and the second is manslaughter. So murder is intentional. It could be either hot-blooded, that is a crime of passion, or it could be cold-blooded, that is you know, calculated, planned killing. Uh, manslaughter is different, though, because it's accidental death. So you can think of a drunk driver killing someone through their negligence or irresponsibility, though in the Bible, that's actually more akin to murder. Uh, or it could be more innocent in the sense of a work-related accident that was just unavoidable. So we understand that murder gets the death penalty, but even with manslaughter, and just think of you know, the accidental, unintentional kind, God still requires the death penalty. Why? Because as Numbers 35 indicates, and it's assuming, again, Genesis 4 through 9, the spilled blood of a human pollutes the land no matter if it was intentional or not. However, as verse 13 really kind of only hints at, 
Those guilty of manslaughter, they may use the cities of refuge, which were uh, set apart for their protection. So in the case of accidental manslaughter, the person guilty of manslaughter must immediately uh, go to the nearest city of refuge. They cannot wait. They have to just take up and go right then and there. If he goes, he's protected. If not, the next of kin is required to seek justice for the loss of life. And this is not a vengeance killing. This isn't, you know, like, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die, Princess Bride. It, it's not that. No, it's the next of kin is sanctioned and required by God to be the agent of justice, whether they want to do it or not. And some would not have wanted to do this. It's paying blood for blood. And as the Bible makes clear, only blood can atone for blood. So if the person who committed manslaughter makes it to the city of refuge, there's a trial. And if he was cleared of murder, then he was required to stay in the city until the high priest dies. And the high priest would have been in Jerusalem. Now that could be next year. Could be 40 years from now. Your family may move with you, but in essence, you're losing your family's lands and life will be much harder for you, but still you, you keep your life while you wait for the high priest to die. So here's the reasoning for this because all of this seems so strange to us, I know. Here's the reasoning. When the high priest dies, his blood is counted by God as an atoning sacrifice for the blood crying out from the ground. So the one man's death, and it's not just anyone, it's the high priest. The high priest's death, his blood atones for the sin of the many. Hopefully that sounds familiar to you. This is why the book of Hebrews is basically an exposition of how the whole Levitical sacrificial system is really about Jesus. But if someone commits murder, he cannot run to the city of refuge. I mean, he may try, but he cannot run to the city of refuge and expect safety. Even if he's in the tabernacle, grabbing on to the horns of the altar in the sacred space, he's supposed to be dragged out from there and put to death. Justice, and believe it or not, the land itself demands this. So we only think of polluting the land in terms of trash or garbage or toxic waste. In God's view, humans are so tied to the ground. We lose this in our modern thinking. Humans are so tied to the ground that our moral actions pollute the land far more than, say, a landfill might. Now, I am not advocating for toxic waste or, or being abusive with the land at all, but the earth can recover from it. The land, however, needs redemption from our sin. After all, it wasn't toxic waste that predicated the flood. It was human violence. It was the blood crying out. This is why Jesus' death doesn't just atone for humans. As Paul says in Romans 8 and 7, it redeems the very ground itself, a ground that has been cursed by humanity's sin. But it's not just murder or manslaughter that gets the death penalty. It says whoever strikes his father or his mother or whoever curses his parents gets the death penalty. And this is clearly an extension of what the fifth commandment means to honor your parents and let me just, children, don't freak out. This is not about a petulant child or a disrespectful teenager in the moment. No, as Deuteronomy 21 makes clear, this is an adult son or daughter who openly 
and persistently mocks their parents or physically attacks or abuses them. And we take this sort of behavior, of course, to be tragic or actually somewhat normal these days, but God takes it to be utterly destructive to a community and worthy of death. Now, in addition to parental abuse, as we talked about last week in detail, anyone who steals a man and sells him and the person who buys him is worthy of the death penalty too. God is absolutely against chattel slavery and those who traffic in it are worthy of death, both buyer and seller, rightly so. Okay, the next section, verses 18 through through 27, is on assault. And this, as you think about it, is a tax on a person that does not lead to death. So the first case mentioned is when two men are quarreling, and that word is important, and one hits another either by punching him or by using a weapon, and the man goes down. If he doesn't die but recovers, then the guy who hit him pays both for the man's loss of time and for all his medical bills. Notice that punishment. There's the lex talionis. The punishment is not, okay, now the other guy gets to punch you in the face or hit you with the weapon. No, he owes what was taken from him, his time and his money. But notice that both men were quarreling. This isn't a case of self-defense. We'll get to that next week with chapter 22. No, the assault stems from two people who have given vent to their anger, who've lost their composure and their self-control and are acting like two fools on Facebook. Or you can think of it like two people at a party who've been drinking, you know, the most uh, most abuse uh, controlled substance really in, in America right now, who've been drinking and they keep ramping up their posturing. They keep going at it and going at it and eventually it starts to go badly. God absolutely does not endorse this, especially when it turns violent. And the, the violence always stems from what comes out of our hearts through to our mouths and then to our fists. Does God endorse self-defense? Yes, yes, he does. But the loss of your self-control, either in verbal or physical outbursts, is not self-defense, it's foolishness. It's walking in the way of Cain instead of the way of Abel. So this, this law is a stringent attempt at curtailing violence, both verbal and physical, by making either party who has given vent to their sin and their anger, possibly responsible for a serious loss of money. The next case is one we mentioned last week. If a master kills his slave, the slave will be avenged and the master receives the death penalty. But if the slave survives, then no payment is made to the slave. And as we mentioned last week, and if you you missed that sermon, I encourage you to go listen to it. I kind of did a deep dive on what the Bible is after there. God permitted slavery, but it was not brutal like American chattel slavery. It was not. Now, to be sure, it was not a cakewalk either. It was disciplinary, and we see that in view here. The slave should not have been in slavery. He's there because of his debt, and if he recovers, good. You still have your life. Now, the third case in this section is a little strange to us, though if you've watched enough YouTube videos, you might have seen this. So imagine that two men are fighting and one man's pregnant wife tries to intervene. Maybe her man is just taking it right now. And she she gets hit by the other man in such a way that it induces labor and delivery. 
If the child is unharmed, then the man who assaulted her is taken to court and an agreed upon fine by both the husband and the court is levied against the man who assaulted her. But if the child dies, it's the death penalty. And if you ever wanted a text that pointed to God's views on the, imbor- on, on a, on the unborn, well, here's a good one. Here's a good one. To commit abortion in the Mosaic law warrants the death penalty. Full stop. There is so much that could be said about this, but, but I'm not going to address it here. It's enough to say that just like what happened under slavery and Jim Crow in this country, what is enshrined in American law right now regarding abortion has thoroughly polluted the land. It just has. Is it forgivable? Of course. Is it possible to be atoned for? Yes. Is it redeemable? Of course it is. But we maybe ought to consider that, that God's real kindness to our nation right now is that he has been long-suffering and not wiping us out for the amount of blood we have spilt on our shores. Regardless, you know, God's view is that the man who caused the loss of the child's life must die, blood for blood. So in God's view, it's, it's better to be self-controlled and not fight at all. It's better to walk away from a hot-headed fool than to defend yourself or your so-called honor. In fact, nowhere, nowhere does the Bible talk about defending your honor or your good name, ever. No, it says God will do that for you. It's God who will avenge, not you. It is better to remain silent than to engage with a fool and possibly lose it all. And this takes us then to the final two sections of case laws involving humans and animals. If you look at verses 28 through 32, uh, this is the case law involving an animal killing a human. If a man's ox uh, gores another person, that ox will be stoned to death. It will not be eaten, and the owner is not liable for the death. So remember what we read in Genesis 9. If an animal takes the life of a human, it receives the death penalty. The reason for this, as J.J. Finkelstein points out, is that it's the reversal of the created order of dominion. Humanity was created to have dominion over the animal kingdom, so that ox is, in a certain light, like an insurrectionist. It's acting like the snake of Genesis 3. Humans are given the right to make use of animals, either as stewards over them, think of you know, shepherd or, or as pets or for food. And, and sorry, all vegans and Seventh-day Adventists, the Bible is pro-meat. Uh, or, or we may use animals as workers, but animals are not given the right to kill a human or be over a human. So the animal is stoned, which is what you would do to a condemned criminal, and no one can make use of that animal, not the hide, not the remaining good meat, none, none of that. Now, if the animal was notorious, that is, if it was known to be aggressive and the animal's owner didn't do anything about it, now think about, again, this is a whole category of YouTube videos, think about people owning a pit bull that was known to be aggressive. And if that animal kills the person, that animal is put to death and so is the owner. And so is the owner. The owner is put to death because he valued his animal more than his neighbor, which of course happens a lot these days. Many people care far more about a pet than other humans, and it's a symptom of just how sick our modern culture really is. And of course, animals, of course, animals have 
have worth and value, but they are not as valuable as an image bearer. They're just not. Now, it says in verse 30 that the owner of the animal can be ransomed. That is, that a fine can be imposed on this guy who, who did not restrain his animal like he should have been, and that it can be paid and save his life. If you keep going, verse 32, uh, if a notorious animal kills a slave, the animal will die and the payment for the slave will be 30 shekels of silver. And this was the going price of a slave at that time. And by the way, it's the same amount paid to Judas for his betrayal of Jesus. Again, Jesus took the place of a slave for us in our salvation. Now, the final section reverses the issue and deals with people who are reckless or have no regard for other people's animals. So the donkey, so for example, the example is given of a man who digs a pit and doesn't cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into that pit. Well, the man who owns the pit both has to pay the value of the dead animal to the owner, and he has to deal with the dead animal himself. He's got to get it out of the pit. He's got to maybe bury it, whatever it may be. If in the case of of one man's ox attacking another person's ox itself and results in the death of that other animal, the attacking animal is sold and both people split the profit and in turn, they split the dead animal too. So they both break even for something that was accidental. But if that animal was known to be aggressive and it kills a neighbor's animal, and again, you could think of like a, a dog attacking another dog, whatever it may be, he owes the full worth of the animal to the owner but he can keep the dead animal, presumably for its hide. And again, it's, it's an equitable, equitable financial payout. So what stands behind you know, these final case laws is Genesis 1 and 2, where humans are given stewardship over animals. We are allowed to make use of them either for work or for food, but it does not give us the right to abuse or mistreat them. But we also aren't allowed to value animals more than people. No matter who that person is or how much the animal is worth or how much you may, you may love that animal. No, there is a proper order to these things. So it's interesting when you consider the end of the book of Jonah, for example. Uh, what does God say in his appeal to Jonah? Shouldn't I care about all these people and their cattle too? God cares about his creation, not just humans. He cares about the entirety of his creation. So... I just ran through 18 ancient case laws incredibly fast. What should we make of all this? Well, I want to highlight just two quick things. First, what I hopefully you can see in all this is that love for neighbor, which is at the root of this, love for neighbor extends to another person's body and their children and their property and their animals. So to love God's ways is not just to think nice thoughts about your neighbor. Hey there, neighbor. No, but to really be concerned and invested in their flourishing. It's intentional. What you do with your home and your land and your animals doesn't just matter for you and your family. It matters to the whole community. God requires that his redeemed people have that kind of outward-facing attitude of love, or as it used to be called, civility. Civility. Civility is a rare quality these days, and as Christians, we ought to be pursuing it, no matter if other people are not doing it. Second, 
God's people must not be. We must not be quarrelsome. You know, keep in mind, you know, these laws are given to Israelites and define how Israelites, that theocratic nation set apart by God to be his people, how they were supposed to live together. So think of it. How were Cain and Abel supposed to live together? Does that mean we will always agree with each other? Sin says no. We will not always agree with each other. So the question becomes, what do we do when we can't agree? Well, clearly, quarreling and assault are not the answer, even as this is exactly how so many Christians act these days. Self-control, gentleness, and humility are some of the most neglected qualities of the Christian life and some of the ones that are most exhorted to us by Paul and Jesus. And the people of God cannot act like the world, especially when it comes to how we treat each other, to how we treat God's household. Should we defend the innocent? Of course. Should we allow people to bully other people? No. We should absolutely stand against abuses of power, especially inside the church especially inside the church. The issue here is not an issue of self-defense. It's an issue of Cain and Abel and how we will love our brothers and sisters in Christ well. And then we extend that out to our neighbors too. What is absolutely not permitted is the loss of self-control that leads to the loss of life or liberty or someone's property or more common than not in the church, the loss of relationships. I think Paul's words from 2 Timothy 2 are, are good words to end on. This is his exhortation, his, his encouragement uh, to Christian workers to live in light of Christ and to model their lives on Christ. And I think this applies to everyone who, who belongs to God. This is what he says, beginning in verse 22. So flee youthful passions. That's so important because so many quarrels so much loss of self-control is because we've given into the thing we've been doing since we were 16. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do, nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Brothers and sisters, the goal of the church is that. That's our goal. That's our calling. And we do this not for our sake, but for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has set us apart like Israel to walk in his ways. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are good. And your steadfast love endures forever. We see that writ large in the person of your son, Jesus the Christ, who laid down his life for us and our salvation. And we see that in how you've united us to him through your spirit. That we do have the testimony of his word 
in us, working against the testimonies of our own hearts that often seek our own ends, that often seek after quarreling and anger and to be right and so many other things. Lord, continue to bless us with your patience. Continue to be a good teacher to us, a good father to us who endures with us and wants to see what is best for us and is willing to work us towards maturity. We thank you in Christ's name through the power of the Spirit. Amen.